Well, good afternoon. My name is Michael, and I am the lead minister of the New Life family of churches. Uh, if you are, hey, thanks so much, Sandra. Amazing. It's awesome. No one else clapped, though, so you don't get the money after church. Anyway, so, um, guys, thanks so much for being here. I'm Michael. If you don't know about New Life, uh, we, we've got three churches, a part of our family. We're a church planting movement. We believe in seeing more people more like Jesus. I was with you guys last week, um, and it's such a blessing to be back again. Um, I kind of was sitting in church last week as Pastor Alex was speaking, and I, I, like, there was moments when I was laughing because I, find, I don't know if you find this, but I feel like Alex can fit more syllables into a sentence than I can, but it makes sense every time. And when Alex preaches, I feel like it's a sincere hug that ends up being a firm hold of truth that's like, oh, I really need to hear this. It's a little painful, but comforting all at the same time. Beautiful. It's like I'm learning about how to be a better pastor and preacher from Pastor Alex and Kath Stark, and they're a blessing. I also thought JJ drummed amazing today, man. Like, that was so cool. This is my third church service today, and there's that moment where you're like being in three church services, you're like, man, I don't know if I can, you know, if I've got anything left in worship. I thought the team just led us so beautifully. My heart was refreshed, um, and because my heart is refreshed, we're going to preach short tonight and to the point, amen? That was the test. We're going long. Would you join me as we pray? Gracious God, we thank you so much that we can be here tonight. God, we, 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 we are planting our roots deep in the heart of Brisbane City because we believe that this city needs the blessing of the gospel, needs to know that there is more for this city than just what this world has to offer. So God, today, what we need, Father, is not more humanity. We need more of you, your goodness, your glory, your beauty. Maybe we're here today for the first time. Open our hearts to see you, to know you, to hear your voice. May we're here today uh, because we're here every week, but God, may we hear afresh. God, turn down the distractions of our world, that our hearts might turn up the voice of your Spirit. As always, Lord Jesus, less of me, more of you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in the middle of this series called Rework, and the whole idea of it is that God has called us to be part, co-partner with Him as He redeems, restores, and rebuilds our world. And I remember the first time that I really understood the power of faith and work. So a couple years ago, when I was about 23 years old, I went to a conference called Compass, and I was sharing this, um, this story about, at the start of the series with our Rabina congregation, and, and Compass was this conference that was about knowing the gospel, knowing the culture, and translating between the two of them. Now, if you know a Henderson or a Philip that's a part of this congregation, they were there with me, so you can ask if this story is accurate. And the first half of the week was this beautiful moment as they took us deep into the gospel and the Bible story. And the last half of the week was this time when we applied the gospel story to real life scenarios. One of those scenarios I remember changed my life. I'm sitting in the middle of a room with about 300 other young adults and a businessman was brought in who, who ran a business that, that ultimately took money from millionaires, like in money the millionaires willingly gave him, and invested it into entrepreneurs who were starting up small business enterprises to forward the kingdom of God in third world countries or in other countries around the world. And this businessman hopped up in front of us and started to tell us this story. That one young man had come to him with a great idea for a business and had put together a proposal for a couple million dollars. This middleman entrepreneur had taken this proposal and brought it before these millionaires and said, hey, there's a great kingdom initiative. This guy would like a loan and he'll pay it back over the next couple of years. The millionaires excited about the strategy gave him the millions of dollars. 
only to know that three weeks later, the man disappeared along with all the money. And they turned to this room filled with righteous, gospel-filled, Bible-centered, 23-year-old young adults and asked us this question, so what would you do? And we rained down the wrath of God on his life. We're like, well, you know, there is the grace of God, but it doesn't excuse consequence. So, you know, forgive him, but, you know, we got to set the CIA on this guy, get him back to Australia, pay the money back and take him to court. And we went to town and we were all debating about how hard should we go and what should we do? And then the room quieted and the businessman said, did you want to know what happened next? We're like, yes. He said, so we found the man in another country and we convinced him to come back to Australia with his family. He'd gone to ground and, and we asked him what had happened. And he said that he'd made a really bad decision and invested the money in a way he shouldn't have and lost all the money. When that happened, he went to ground and just disappeared because he was afraid. He knew he'd made a mistake. And so we had him in the room with us and they turned to us again. And this business entrepreneur, this follower of Christ in the marketplace said, what would you have done? What would you do in that place? How do you apply the gospel here? And so we went at it again. We're like, well, let me tell you, you know, the God I love and serve gives us a second chance, but also means sometimes that means jail. Sometimes that means court. Sometimes that means you've got to, you know, do what you need to do to pay the money back. And I'm not joking for about 20 to 25 minutes. We just prosecuted this guy we'd never met or never understood what his life story was like. We were filled with the zealousness of the Lord. And then the room went quiet. And the guy turned to us and said, do you want to know what we did? And we're like, yes. He goes, well, instead of me telling you, why don't I get him to tell you the story? Hey, Bob, would you stand up? Down the back of this room, the very man that we had been prosecuting stood. And he walked down the front, and you could have heard a pin drop. And we're like, oh, no. Some people started crying. It was a really hard moment. And he said, Bob, tell us what, what we did. And Bob stood there and said, well, you know, it was a hard thing because that millions of dollars had to be paid back. There was no way out of that. Those millionaires were going to hold this business to account. And so we had to work out a way to pay back that money or I had to go to jail. And he said, but this, this guy saw potential in me. He saw an opportunity for a second chance and maybe a man of God to be redeemed. So he went to his own savings account, paid back the millions of dollars out of his own savings, forgave my debt and invited me to work for him. And now we're seeing God do amazing things because he gave me a second chance. I've learned my lesson and we are seeing God move in ways I never thought possible. And the room was silent. And it was the first time in my life that I've seen the intersection between faith and work play out in a way where someone at personal cost to themselves lived out the gospel faithfully and the world was better because of it. This is what this whole series is about. That God has not called us to just be pious people who know how to raise our hands, seeing what a beautiful name it is on Sunday, but know how to live out that reality on Monday. That we are a people partnering with God, laboring with Him to see His kingdom come. But the truth is, and the reality is, so often in church, we spend so much of our time talking about so little of our life. You would have heard this quote earlier in the series, but John Mark Comer says this. It'll be on the third slide in. Thank you, Moni. In the church, we often spend the majority of our time teaching people how to live the minority of their lives. That's why we're stepping in to rework. Because we believe that if you are asking the question, does what I do matter? 
as a lawyer, a doctor, a student, an entrepreneur, a retiree, a mother, a father, a friend, if you're wondering if God cares about the work of your hands, the answer is an unequivocal yes. And he wants to use it for his glory and the good of the world. Not just for our bank accounts, not just for our kingdoms, but for a greater kingdom that will last for eternity. That's why this series, we've been walking through these themes. Pastor Alex started with redeem the time. The idea that you were made in the image of God. That you were made in such a way to co-partner and co-rule. On the next slide, you'll see that the second theme was pioneer the future. This sense of that you should dream big and hope big. This morning at Kulangata, a young entrepreneur gave his life to God because the first time he heard that God wants people to dream big for his glory and the good of the world. He said, this is a savior and a God that I want to give my life to. It was beautiful. There was this moment where Pastor Alex led us beautifully into understanding, hey, we need to resist work of idolatry, the idolatry of work with the Sabbath. Next week, we spoke about what it means to plant our roots deep and bless the city, that we should be having children, getting married, and blessing the city by gathering here in community that the world might know the name of Jesus, that we would live on purpose. And last week, that when we are positioned in our workplace, we're positioned to have conversations that matter. So this week, on the second last week of this series, I want want to talk about one of the most pivotal parts of our work. A part of our work that I would argue it is impossible to make an eternal impact without it. I want to talk about the place of prayer. I want to talk about the place of prayer. What role does prayer have in your work? A guy named Peter Grieg says this, too often we complain that we are too busy to pray. Jesus had three years to change the world and save, the huma- and save humanity and still he found time in his schedule to pray. We've outscheduled one of the things that was not peripheral to the mission of Christ, but central, and wondered why is our life not counting? Friends, I believe prayer is central to the Christian life and the Christian lifestyle. And maybe you're here today and you are not a Christian and you're like, I don't wanna pray. This sounds like religious. Friends, the beauty about following Jesus is not this expectation to pray, but an invitation that prayer is the very means we commune with God because prayer can change and form our work. I believe prayer can move the hand of God. That without prayer, there are things that God may not do because we have not asked. But I believe one of the most pivotal parts of prayer is not that it just forms our work, but that it forms us for our work. Let me say this again. Prayer is important not just because it forms our work, but it forms us for our work. And Jesus teaches this. He teaches it beautifully in Luke chapter 11 when his disciples discover him praying. They say, Father, Jesus, teach us how to pray. So he teaches them the Lord's Prayer. Another moment where he teaches the Lord's Prayer is in another gospel in Matthew chapter 6 where he teaches them how to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this, when you pray, don't always pray in public. Not because Jesus has something against people praying, praying in public, But he says, people who only pray in public aren't praying to God, they're praying for men. But pray in private, in the quiet, intimate places. And he goes on and says in Matthew chapter 6, don't just just pray with flowery words. God is not William Shakespeare. He didn't write Romeo and Juliet. He's not concerned with your sentence structure. Don't have vain repetitions like the Pharisees and Sadducees. Pray from your heart with simple, beautiful prayers. And then you might say, Michael, How do I pray those prayers? And Jesus, in his beautiful intentionality, says, whenever you pray, this is what it should sound. This is how 
you should pray. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, Jesus says this. This then is how you pray. And what I want to show today, friends, is not the only format for prayer. God is a relational God. He doesn't give us these cookie-cutter stereotypes that says, if you're going to do it, you can only do it like this. But he gives us a launching pad to go. There should be no one that says, I don't know how to pray. Let me give you the most basic script of all so that you can begin today. And with that, he launches into a prayer that I believe, if applied to our life, could transform your workplace, your family, and indeed our world. Jesus pauses and he says this, how do we pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we need to pause there and just wait for a moment because when we read this, this is like a colloquialism in our world. We've all heard this prayer. If you're over the age of 30, you would remember the Cliff Richards Lord's Prayer at the change of the millennium. I was old enough to be there for that. Those of you who are younger, you are blessed that you never heard that rendition. Others of you have said it in school. We've prayed it. We've talked about it. You will have heard it maybe at some stage. I don't think we're that post-Christian that most people will not have heard this prayer at some point in their life. So we can kind of walk past short. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Without recognizing the revolutionary controversy of what Jesus was saying. See, when Jewish people prayed, they were very careful about what they would say about God. In fact, the Jewish name for God, Yahweh, was so holy and sacred that it was rarely written and never spoken. They would replace it with other words and descriptors like Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, El Shaddai, El Adonai. And these words describe God's character and they replaced the holy name for God. Why? Because to talk about God intimately and on first name basis was almost to lower him to a level he should not be at. Which is why when Jesus steps in and says, not our Jehovah Jireh, not our Jehovah Nisi, not our El Shaddai, but our Father, there would have been a sharp intake of breath. <gasps> we don't talk about God like that. And this, friends, is so beautifully controversial, but it's also an invitation. See, Jesus doesn't say when you pray, pray to Jesus' dad, to Jesus' father. No, no, his invitation is this, our father, our father. And still yet we may miss how weird this is. Imagine you go over your friend's house for a sleepover. Imagine you, when you're young, right? Probably not anymore. Hopefully, you know, well, maybe you do. I don't know. You do you. But there's a sense. When you go over to your friend's house, you get introduced to their parents. And so if you came to my house, you'd be introduced to Mr. and Mrs. Hens. Now, they might say, you can call me Mark and Kerry, but I grew up in a household that was told that even if they give you their first name, you always use their last name. So it's like, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Hens, you can call me Mark or Kerry. And I'd be like, sure thing, Mr. and Mrs. Hens. Like, that was just how I was raised. But could you imagine how weird it would be if your friend's like, dude, hey, <clears throat> You can just call him dad. <laughs> You'd be like, I'm not going to do that. That's weird because he's not my dad. And if this is some weird kidnapping thing, I'm out. He's your dad. He's not my dad. I'm not going to say, hey, our father is such a good guy. That's your dad. And we should be similarly confused by Jesus who says, our father. When did you choose that God was your father? Because we have this, this um, pervasive mistruth that everyone in the world is a child of God. It's actually not anywhere in the Bible. 
Because if everyone's a child of God, what we do is we undermine the theology of adoption, which is so central to the gospel. Now, hear me, I'm not saying that God doesn't want everyone to be a child of God. I'm saying that a lot of humanity has chosen to not be children of God. That at some stage, friends, what the Bible says is that we would prefer to be enemies of God or ignorers of God altogether. That the most of humanity says, I want nothing to do with you. You are not my God. So how does it change from enemy to father? Well, this is why the start of this prayer is so formative. Because Jesus, at the start of this prayer, doesn't just point to a relational reality, but the gospel truth. That the only way that God can become the father of any individual is through the finished work of Jesus Christ who lived a life that we could not live and died a death that we could not die. That he would become our elder brother by the blood of his sacrifice that we would be washed clean and adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters of God. What does it mean for you to call God your father? It means that you've chosen that Jesus Christ's work on the cross was needed by you, for you, because your life was broken without him, and that you trust him with your brokenness, and now you get to find a home and a father who will never leave you, never let you down, and never walk out on you. Friends, my question to you today is, do you know God as father? And on this ad, on Father's Day, some of us might be sitting here and be like, I don't want a father. I had a terrible father, an absent father, or this hurts me. And I would encourage you, do not let the failure of humanity rob you of the revelation of what God is trying to reveal to you through this image. If fathers have hurt us, it is because, as Alex so poignantly said, they were a poor shadow of a beautiful heavenly reality. And maybe, friends, God wants to redeem what man has broken. He is not a God who abuses, who negates, who leaves, who walks away. He is a father who remains, who seeks you out, who calls you home. He runs to you when you make your way back. Do you know God as father today? But Jesus doesn't just stop there. He also says, hallowed be your name. What does it mean to hallow someone's name? Well, actually, we hallow names all the time. If I were to say to you, we're going to Betty Burgers tonight, and Hugh Jackman is going to be there, many of you would be like, holy smokes, that's the best day of my life. If you didn't say that, then you're wrong because Hugh Jackman is a national treasure. And I love him. So let's chat about it another time. But how many of you rock up to church and it's like the Holy Spirit is present? And we're like, sure. He was here last week. We, we, we hallow the name of man, but we've forgotten to hallow the name of God that we actually don't hold it in equal weight, with, not in equal weight, in higher weight, in higher glory, and higher beauty. Because here's what Jesus is doing. God is your father, which means he's imminent and close, but we also hallow his name, which also we recognize he's transcendent and beautiful, that he sits on the throne and we can still run to him with our needs in times of crisis. Our Father who art in heaven, here's how it changes your work. Because when you go into that workplace and when you step into your home, into your university, you are not stepping in needing people's approval when the person who sits on the throne of the heavens and of reality has called you son and daughter. That you are now formed by the finished work of Christ that your job review doesn't give you value. Because your value comes from the finished work of Christ as you are a son and daughter of God, you can step in with a gospel boldness and a gospel humility all at the same time. 
This is why it's so beautiful when we pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, and go on. And we say, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said the second part of the prayer does something else confusing that we can miss if we just assume we understand. Jesus is almost inviting us, it seems to me, to give God permission. Hey, God, you can now let your kingdom come down. And now you can let your... And that's not really what's happening here. Because for us to pray for God's kingdom to come or God's will to be done, the reality must be that there are other kingdoms and other wills at play. That there are actually choices as to which kingdom wins. Maybe not the war, which was won by Christ, but maybe the battle. There are other choices as to which will trumps all wills. And I think there are three wills at work in your life right now other than the will of God. There is your will. Your will, not God's will, your will. Then when God's like, hey, I'd love you to do this, we're like, well, my will's saying we're gonna do this. So Holy Spirit, you're coming with me over here. There is humanity's will, the will of your boss, the will of flesh, the will of people in your world who may knowingly or unknowingly be working against God's call and God's, God's appointment for your life. And finally, the reality is that there is the will of the, of the dark forces that we know are at work in the world around us. See, in Christianity, we do not just believe in a God, but in a spiritual reality where heavenly and dark forces are at war in a spiritual battle that was won in the, in the fight on the cross and by the empty tomb, but there is still these battles that go on every day that distract the obedience of the follower of Christ. John Mark Comer says it like this. Notice that Jesus assumed God's will was not done. Now, I've got a mistake here, so I'm going to fix it. So just stay with me and don't necessarily read along. That God's will was not done on earth, hence the prayer. For Jesus, heaven is the place, don't listen, uh, no, listen, don't read, where God's will is done all the time, and earth is the place where God's will was only done some of the time. Because on earth, there are other wills at play. God isn't the only one with a will, an agenda for what he wants to see happen in the world and the capacity to carry it out. See, when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, it is a prayer of intercessory spiritual warfare where we are aligning ourselves with a kingdom that cannot end, that will be eternal. But we are saying, hey, whilst God, you have won and we believe God has the eternal will, that eternity will play out the way God wants it to. There's a temporary will that is at stake depending on the obedience of humanity. In every moment you walk into in your day, when we pray your will be done, we are reminding ourselves that we are in a battle of wills. May we submit ourselves to a father who can be trusted and his will is better than our own. So Jesus prays, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. So when you step into a boardroom, when you step into a classroom, when you step into a university, you can acknowledge and go, God, there are different kingdoms at work here. I submit to your kingdom. And then he goes on and he prays an interesting prayer. Give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. Do you see what Jesus does here so beautifully? I love to say strategically, but I doubt Jesus was using strategy. He just was divine and all-knowing and amazing what he did. He starts with talking about God's character and how he can be trusted as your father who is holy and transcendent. And then he identifies there is a spiritual warfare that's going on and God's kingdom is better than other kingdom. His will is better than any other, other will. And so he kind of works through this thing. And only once he's established those two ideas in his prayer does he come and go, now God, now we come before God with our personal asks with the things that we want. Why is this? Well, Timothy Keller says this, we come with our needs expectant of a positive, we come with our needs expectant of a positive response, but we do so changed by our satisfaction in Him 
and our trust of Him as our Father. We do not come arrogantly and anxiously telling Him what must happen. Many things we would have otherwise agonized over, we can now ask for without desperation. Because when things don't play out the way we want them to, we've already acknowledged He's a good Father who wants good gifts for His children. And so if it doesn't play out the way I want it to, it must be because He knows something I don't. Or maybe he's longing for me to ask again and lean in in relationship. Craig Rossell says it like this. When we pray and ask of God, we ask things of God, not trusting what he will do. We're trusting in who he is. There's an important pivotal point there. That friends, you are welcome to come to the Father in heaven who has adopted you through Christ the Son to bring the petitions of your heart for daily provision. But here's the other beautiful thing that Martin Luther, the great reformist, highlights. When we ask for daily bread... We don't ask just for daily bread for us. What does Jesus teach us to pray? Give us, for me, for, give us today our daily bread. It's a communal ask. And it's almost a highlight and hinted at what happens in our world when someone is not receiving their daily needs, their daily bread. This is almost a petition of the Christian against the social injustice and corruption in our world that would deprive people of their daily needs, that we ask God, God, give us today our daily bread. We're praying against those things which would rob people of their basic human rights and dignity as images of God. So when we step into our workplace, hey God, identify to me what corruption looks like here, what injustice looks like here, that it's not just about my needs, but that you're meeting the needs of humanity through me in this workplace. Set me on mission that we might all be provided for by your holy will and goodness. Friends, you see how this prayer doesn't just form our work, it forms us for our work as it teaches our hearts how to approach the Father, but things that are on our hearts and are dear to the heart of the Father as well. He moves from character, kingdom, to need, to confession. And forgive us our debts, Jesus prays, as we forgive those who are our debtors. And I think this is actually the hardest part of the prayer. Because Jesus says, daily, we come before God in confession. There's sometimes in Christianity this belief that once you come to know to Jesus, you no longer sin. One of the most simplest ways you could debunk this is by verse 12. Jesus didn't say this was a one-time prayer, but a prayer we could always pray. And if we are always needing to pray and forgive us our debts, and clearly, on a daily basis... We must stuff up and fall short. Which is so comforting to know that God's expectation is not a sinless humanity, but rather disciples who know where to take their brokenness. Because friends, what your workplace needs is not a person who knows how to be perfect, but just someone who knows the one who is. And that is so beautiful. But the other reason why this is so important on a daily basis, God, forgive me for the depth of my brokenness, my need, my, my understanding. Is What it does is it humbles you to recognize that you are in daily in need of grace. The world doesn't need more proud Christians, but more Christians filled with humility as we have an accurate understanding of who God is and who we are in light of that. Because this is what changes. When we recognize the depth of our brokenness, we become not just a receiver of forgiveness, but a conduit for forgiveness. C.S. Lewis says this, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And I'll ask just a simple question today. For those of you who are followers of Christ, when was the last time you came before God in confession? 
When was the last time you just got down before God and said, God, you know there's stuff in my heart, my life that is not of you. And I just want to ask you to, to, to forgive me and lead me out of it. Romans 2 verse 4 says this, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, which means that repentance is a gift, not a punishment. It releases us and frees us from the weight of guilt and shame, and God invites us into daily. But here's the reason why. Because so often, when you recognize how much you've been forgiven, you become lavish in your forgiveness. Too many people in this world as Christians are happy to receive the forgiveness of God, but then we become gatekeepers for the forgiveness of God. That person gets it, not him. Nothing against Aaron. He's a great guy. He was just a hypothetical situation, but not that guy, right? And why is that? Well, because they did that to me. And in the Gospels, Jesus seems to say that for those disciples who do not forgive, hear me here, it's because they are not forgiven. That disciples who do not forgive is because they are not forgiven. Because forgiveness is never something that flows from God to you and stops with you. It flows from God to you and flows through you. Because forgiveness can only come when we recognize the reality of our brokenness. Now, hear me. I had a lady come up today pray for forgiveness. She's like, I find it hard to forgive this person every day. I'm not saying that forgiveness is a one-time event against someone that has done us wrong. But every day we come before God for forgiveness, for the strength to forgive that person. Maybe it's five years ago, 10 years ago who wronged you. Like, God, I don't want to be bitter. I want to not only have your forgiveness, but lend your forgiveness. Forgiveness does not, uh, does not establish trust. Forgiveness isn't about intimacy. It's about letting go of the need for justice and letting God be God and moving on, not clinging to the very poison which seeks to kill us in the first place. C.S. Lewis says, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to give it, until we have to practice it. I'd ask you a simple question today. Where in your life are you marked more by bitterness and hurt than grace and forgiveness? Because what the cross of Jesus Christ does for us is it shows us the extent of of punishment that God was willing to inflict upon himself for your sake so that there might be no caveat of, well, God, I can tolerate that much before I can't forgive anymore. The cross of Jesus Christ is our motivation, which means this. Friends, if you are struggling to forgive someone and you're holding on to bitterness, the answer is not going and trying harder. That'll just lead you to look more constipated in your Christianity. It'll, it'll be weird. It'll be like, oh, I'm going to try hard to forgive. Some of you are like, that's a really weird image that I'm seeing in my head right now. What it means is this, is that if we struggle to forgive, we return to the cross of Christ and say, God, give me a deeper understanding of what you did that I might know what you did for them. It's a great story Timothy Keller uses in his book, Every Great Endeavor, where he says a young lady who was practicing at a law firm um, early in her probation lost the biggest client of the law firm, which meant that she was probably going to lose her job. And the supervisor came along and he, and he looked at her and was talking to her and, and found out what was happening. He then went to his supervisors to give them an account of what had happened. And when they were hearing it, he took full account and credit and responsibility for her failure. They didn't even hear her name. He lost standing, he lost mobility, but he didn't lose his job because he had tenure. And nothing was exacted of her. And she came to him. She said, I've had bosses that have taken credit for my success, but never for my failure. Why? He's like, don't worry about it. It's not a thing. She said, no, why? He said... Okay, a couple of years ago, I discovered this man named Jesus. And when, and when he came into my life, he showed me that my deepest failure was covered by his greatest act. And so I've always decided when I could give someone a second chance, I would, because God loves you. She looked at him and she said, 
So where do you go to church? And can I come on Sunday? Why? Because I believe forgiveness is one of the greatest tools of evangelism in our world. Because it doesn't make sense without God. Jesus finishes his prayer with this. And deliver us, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The reality of the world you walk in tomorrow at work is, is that it's a world of temptation. The temptation to chase money, fame, sex, power, family, or all these things that are not bad things, but maybe they aren't ultimate things. And we attempted to make them everything we want in our life. And when we pray to God, we, we openly admit there will be temptations in our world. God, steer us away from them. But a quick caveat here that I'd love to mention, by asking God not to lead us into temptation, it does not mean that we can't lead ourselves that we must be aware of our weakness in our world, that there is an evil one who threatens to steal, kill, and destroy, that longs for nothing more than to steal your attention and intimacy with God by pulling it onto the things of this world. So Jesus starts with God's character as Father and finishes all the way down in spiritual warfare again and said, be aware that you are a part of a battle for the very eternal future of people's souls and even your own. Be aware and alert that the God your Father wants to equip you for every battle you will face today. And form you for your work. So when we pray this prayer, friends, it is not a religious prayer. It is the foundational prayer that we can springboard from and use to inspire the words of our heart that we would plead before God that we would be formed by the gospel for the world around us. What would it look like if you were to pray this prayer once a day? Michael, it's, I don't know if I have time. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That was 14 seconds. There is time, friends, and a gift from God. Imagine if it was 30. Imagine if it was a minute. And my encouragement to you today, if we want eternal impact in our work, then may we start on our knees with our God. A guy named John Tyson once said this, if you are struggling to pray, you're wondering, how long should I pray for? He says, pray what you got. 30 seconds, go for 30. Five minutes, go for five. If you're one of those people who go for five hours, God bless you, I'm not there yet, go for five. But God would prefer to talk with you than not at all. And maybe you're here today and you're struggling because you're like, God wants to talk with me. No, no, he doesn't want to talk with you. He wants to be your father who you can run to every day so he might propel you into the world to welcome other sons and daughters home. Friends, would you pray with me tonight? Gracious God, as we come before you tonight and we just wait upon you now, I ask, Holy Father, that you would speak in this space. Lord, there are some of us here tonight who when we talk about fathers on today, that thing, that father wound is heavy and real. Lord, I thank you that both the mother heart of humanity and the father heart of humanity come and derive from your character. But right now, God, I pray for those who the experience of earthly fathers or earthly men and sinful patriarchy has damaged us and put an obstacle between you and us. Father, I thank you that you want to teach and heal. You want to redeem and restore as the perfect image of a good father. 
So right now, if that's you, if you're sitting here today and you're hearing about God addressing himself as Father and you're like, I don't, that, that's hard for me. I want to let you know that in Jesus Christ, you can see the fullness of God's character, of what he is like, and that he can be trusted. And if you would allow him, I believe he wants to move and speak to you today. If you would just open up your hands just in front of you on your lap. Holy God, right now, I pray that you would move in those people's lives who, whose image of you has been tainted by the image of humanity. Redeem, Father, restore. Heal. And where we need to, Father, give us the strength to forgive by the power of your forgiveness for us. Maybe you're here today and, and, and that marker of bitterness is, is real and is, is stinging your heart and your soul. And I just want to ask, God doesn't want you to go and try to forgive. He wants to give you forgiveness to pass through you and to another. And if you would just open your hands with me today, I would love to just pray that that bitterness would, would, would abate and that forgiveness would flow. Father, for those whose hands are open, I ask right now that that stinging of unforgiveness, which leads us to not just know our, our fellow human, but leads us to not know you. Lord, replace it with your forgiveness, with your love, with your goodness, that we might be conduits of grace, that our workplace might be changed, that, Father, passive-aggressive emails would be quickly forgiven, not addressed, that mistakes of family or friendships or past relationships, Father, we would let go of the need for justice and let God be God. And Father, if we don't know you today, I pray right now that you would speak and move in our hearts, that right now we can choose to follow a God who invites us to be formed for the good of the world and the glory of God. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, right now you can say, Jesus, I, I wanna ask for forgiveness and I wanna choose to follow you. And by making the decision to follow Christ, you are adopted into the family of God as a son and a daughter. For those who call upon your name today, may they know what it means to be welcomed home. And may we all be formed for our work by the prayers of our mouths. In Jesus' name we pray.